0: from whqr public media in wilmington north carolina this is coastline i'm rachel lewis hilburn the cape fear region continues to boom In 2010, the U.S. Census Bureau reported Wilmington's population at about 106,000 people. Just 10 years later, the port city's population had grown to more than 115,000. But one statistic is going in the other direction, the number of black citizens who call Wilmington home. In 2010, people of African-American descent constituted almost 20% of the population— by 2020, that number had dropped to 18 percent, and the white population had grown proportionately. The draws to southeastern North Carolina are easy to understand. Beautiful beaches, milder weather, and friendly tax rates. But according to one local resident, quote, not knowing the history can be destructive to a community. When people have no sense of the ground they are standing on, they just keep perpetuating what has already occurred. End quote. This is what Cynthia Brown explained to Washington Post reporter Sidney Trent. It was October of 2020. Trent was writing about the parallels between the Wilmington, North Carolina coup d'etat of 1898 and 21st century concerns about voter suppression in the upcoming presidential election. Even though she was born and raised in the Brooklyn section of Wilmington, it took years before Cynthia Brown learned details of the massacre that shattered families, gutted a a thriving black professional class, and caused her great-grandmother from her deathbed to grab Cynthia's wrist and urge her to run if it ever happens again. What Cynthia did know as a teenager, she wanted to shed Wilmington as soon as she could. And she did. After graduating from one of New Hanover High School's first desegregated classes, she started college that summer. She wasn't sure she ever wanted to return to Wilmington, but she did. And today we'll find out why. Cynthia Brown is a retired human resources professional, a community advocate, and the historian and Christian education director for St. Stephen AME Church in Wilmington. She's also the historian for the graduate chapter of her sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, and she joins me now. Cynthia Brown, welcome to Coastline.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you
0: for inviting me to your show. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Why did you want to shed Wilmington? What was that feeling that was happening in you as a graduated senior?
1: I wanted to shed Wilmington years ago upon high school graduation because the wonderful, beautiful port city I'd come to love, friends, family, neighborhoods, took on a very ugly and dark face as I learned more about what happened here in 1898. I simply couldn't believe it. And I, in some ways, rejected the idea that this could have actually happened. So I wanted to leave. I wanted to move on, receive my, obtain my education, um, start a career, and possibly come back, but I just wasn't sure. It just took on a totally different appearance from the place I'd come to know and love. Now, growing up, you'd heard dribs and drabs
0: about Wilmington's history, and you grew up in a time when there was legal segregation. Can you talk about how you thought about that or how that felt as a little girl growing up?
1: Well, as a little girl, I grew up on uh, the north side of Wilmington, the section that we now know of as Brooklyn, Um, and it was very segregated. It was a a very close-knit neighborhood I remember the 4th Street corridor with uh, booming uh, retail outlets, uh, meat market, grocers, uh, pharmacists. I remember the old Brooklyn drugstore on 4th and Bladen Streets, the McQueen Amoco Station at 3rd and Bladen Streets, Um, houses with picket fences, uh, flowers, uh, citizens' Uh, aunties, grannies sitting on front porches, you'd walk home from school, feel safe walking home. Uh, From where I lived uh, during my elementary school years, I had at least a six or seven block walk to get home. There was never any fear in the neighborhood. Um, The housing stock varied, Uh, some homes were larger and uh, very, very pretty in my opinion as a young child and others were smaller. But it was a neighborhood, and people looked out for each other. Church bells rang on Sundays, and you would see people walking to church or driving up in their cars. Um, So I loved the neighborhood. My memories were very fond, although it was segregated. I even remember as an older child, perhaps my early teen years, coming downtown, riding the city bus where my mother would drive us down to the old Belkberry department store going downstairs into the basement and seeing the white and the colored water fountains. I remember very vividly seeing the white and the colored signs for the restrooms. And uh, how did that feel to you? It felt odd in a sense, but as a child, as a child, I didn't fully understand it. Before my teen years, it was what we did when we went downtown to Belts. Um, I didn't think about it as a child going, say, for instance, to the library, because at that time, in the 50s and 60s, there was still the, quote, colored library on Red Cross Street in an area that's now a small strip mall. And... um, We would go to the library. We had access to the materials we were seeking. And if we couldn't find what we needed, the librarian, who was a relative, I didn't know it at the time, nada Cotton, uh, would help us. So it was a bit odd, but we felt safe. We felt loved. And we didn't feel any sense of threat. That's what I felt as a young child. do you remember how old you were
0: when you first started hearing little bits about 1898? And the reason that we're talking about this is not just because of what you learned as a child, but you are descended from the Howe family. And the Howe family has some incredible history and literally some of the architects of Wilmington. But, but when do you first remember your father saying something about it?
1: I remember my father uh, being upset when he uh, witnessed his grandmother, my great grandmother, Athalia, ranting and rambling about running if something like this ever happened. Now, that was, was so when young. She,
0: I, she was on her deathbed at that she point. She was. So she
1: tell was. us that story. She wasn't in Wilmington at no, that point. No, she was not. My great grandmother, Athalia Howe Whitfield, left Wilmington in the very late 50s. Her daughter, Louise, my grandmother, was living in Pennsylvania in an old steel town, uh, McKeesport. And with my great-grandmother's failing health, her daughter returned to Wilmington to take her, to live with her in Pennsylvania. Um, My mother and father at that point were divorced uh, when we last saw her. My great, I think I was about, mm, I had to have been about eight or nine years old, maybe eight years old then. We were up visiting. I remember walking up some stairs in her home and um, we went over to her bedside. My great-grandmother and I were very close, my paternal great-grandmother. She was the woman who taught me to count when I was a very small child before kindergarten. And I recall going up to her saying something to the extent of grandma Thalia, I'm here. But she looked over. she I don't recall her ever sitting up, but she turned her head. She looked over, and she grabbed my wrist. And I, I was really confused, but I remember it very well. And when she began to mumble about, if it ever happens again, run, run, her grip on my wrist tightened. And that's when I became a little frightened, really, because I didn't know what she was talking about. But the other thing I recall about that day was my father's um, response. He looked not angry, but anxious. And he immediately told my mother to get me and my brother out of the room. He kept saying, Grandmama doesn't know what she's talking about. She'll frighten the children. And... That stayed with me because I had never experienced that with her. We would sit on the steps to her house on the north side. She would count. We would lift fingers. And to see her at that level of anxiety was frightening. But fast-forwarding after that and after her death, when I graduated from high school, my father and his mother came to Wilmington to visit with me and to uh, attend the graduation ceremony. And he began to talk a little more about what she was rambling about. Um, Also, prior to graduation uh, time, he mentioned to me that there was a very bad, uh, he called it race riot at the time. He said many blacks were killed and Wilmington just was not the place for me to be. And it was at a time when I think he wanted me to better understand the divorce that he and my mother uh, went through. Um, Divorces are difficult on children, and in their own ways, parents will give explanations. But some, maybe two or three years before graduation, I was already at New Hanover. He mentioned this dreadful event that had occurred here, and that because of it, Friends of his wanted him to come back and practice medicine, but he never felt that he could be successful here, because he felt that many of the sentiments were still in place from 1898. You're listening to Coastline. Cynthia Brown,
0: descended from Wilmington's Howe family, is my guest today after this short break. More about how she learned the details of the 1898 coup d'etat. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Stay with us. are listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Cynthia Brown is a retired HR director. She's also an advocate for marginalized populations, a historian for St. Stephen AME Church in Wilmington, and she's part of the Howe family line, whose patriarch was brought to Wilmington as a slave. His descendants quickly became the architects of the port city, literally, as well as builders, doctors, teachers. How far has Wilmington come since then? That's part of our exploration today. But Cynthia Brown, let's go back to your upbringing in legally segregated Wilmington. You were one of the first desegregated graduating classes from New Hanover High School. And you learned about 1898 first— when your grandmother, great-grandmother, Athalia Howe, grabbed your wrist from her deathbed and and said, if it ever happens again, run. That is correct. And you didn't – you were a little girl and you didn't really understand what that meant. Yeah. And then your father would let things come out from time to time. But he told you enough when you were in high school to – get you to want to explore a little more on your own. What did he tell you,
1: and then what did you do? My father told me that, and and let me stop and say, we would visit with uh, our father, my brother Michael and I, uh, sometimes over during the summer months. And he told me that there was a, a racial incident here, and he described it as a race riot at the time. Um, he went on to explain that, He didn't feel that Wilmington was a good place for building a career. But he respected other physicians like Dr. Eaton, who was a very good friend of his. And uh, he would reflect before the death of Dr. Avant, who had moved up to Washington, on his career and how he contributed to the community here. Well, one afternoon... My dear friend, and there was a group of about four of us who sort of hung out together in high school. We were walking home, and I said, you know, let's stop in the library. It was located in uh, the WLI building. And I said, let's find out what we can, because my dad's really not saying much about it, and my mother doesn't talk about it at all. And when we came down Market Street, ascended up the short stairs, went in we asked for information it was probably the reference librarian because it was a woman who was right there at a desk as we entered but we asked for information about what happened in wilmington in 1898 now granted this was uh, right around 1970 it was the very early 70s 69 70 and it wasn't long after we came out of the era of the deaths of uh bobby kennedy dr king malcolm x you had the wilmington 10 situation here and so i don't know how what she may have been thinking when we came in this Uh, is a white woman yes it was white female librarian i i couldn't tell you her name uh, or anything but uh i remember walking up and we were very polite and careful because one of the rules in our home was, you know, your mom's a teacher. You don't get in trouble. You you know, you walk this straight line. So she looked at us with a somewhat blank stare, but basically said, why do you need this information? Are you writing a paper? Who is your teacher? Those types of questions that I recall. And we said, I said, I just want to know." <laughs> On which note... She told us, those records are not available to us, to you, being me and my girlfriend. And she pointed, reached over her shoulder, and as I vaguely recall, I think there were stairs that ascended down uh, into the building. But she said, what we have is in our vault, and they're not available to you. My girlfriend, who knew nothing at all about it, sort of took her foot and sort of kicked my foot like, Let's get out of here. Let's go. It was and a bad moment. It was a bad Because very this wasn't moment. just
0: a, a lady innocently saying it's not available to you, not available to the public, you're not old enough. It wasn't any of that. You felt something oh, and, yes. and this was a pivotal moment in your life. It and absolutely in, was. And in how you felt
1: about Wilmington. What what happened inside you when she said that? What well, did it mean to you? There was a part of me that was angry because I had fond memories of of frequenting the library on Red Cross Street, the old colored library, and never having a problem with any information as you would comb through books that were shelved along the walls. Um, I also felt disheartened and a little sad because um, even though she was white, I had not had that experience of, a door slamming directly in my face very hard. Um, By then I was at New Hanover, I remember teachers like Shirley Glover. And even when I was at DC Virgo, I can't recall his first name, but Mr. Walker, my French teacher. Um, And never did I have that sort of reaction to a question. I saw her as someone who had knowledge, to impart upon young people as a part of the educational process. Teachers, librarians, they were all in the same box in my mind. So I was disheartened, I was a bit angry, but there was that voice in my conscience saying, you must not be insolent, you must be polite, you must not get in trouble, you don't want anything to happen, and someone calls your mother and says, your daughter was out here challenging authorities such as go home and I I just said to my friend let's go and we left but I was very angry it stayed with you and this this was a betrayal to you it was of, a betrayal of like her sacred
0: responsibility as an educator
1: you're exactly right my feeling then as a teenager and even more so now as a senior citizen uh, my feeling then was she had the privilege to impart knowledge upon young people. She had the responsibility to impart truth and to shun that responsibility and to close the door in the face of a child who just wanted facts was not
0: appropriate. So I want to talk about your, your family line now, let's meet some of your forebears. And I, I want to set this up by going back to this article sure. in the Washington Post. Sure. You spoke with reporter Sydney Trent, and, yes. and she published this piece in October of 2020. And she wrote, Wilmington's African-American community, a shining post-Civil War model of black upward mobility, has never recovered. That's how she framed it about the, the legacy of 1898. And you said, as I quoted in the introduction, that people who don't know the history of Wilmington operate as though the playing field is level for everyone. They drive by underprivileged neighborhoods. And not knowing the history, though, can be destructive to a community. When people have no sense of the ground they're standing on, they just keep perpetuating what's already occurred. So that's part of the reason we're talking about this. But why why is it that ignorance of the past causes people to unwittingly perpetuate
1: that? Great question. Um, ignorance of the past can perpetuate past ills because, in my opinion, people innocently come in and they look around and and if they enter a community with a particular income level, particular job, uh, outlets that appeal to their social or cultural uh, or ethnic uh, interest, it's very easy to look across the street or down the railroad track or into another neighborhood and say, well, other people don't partake of these events or opportunities. Other people aren't in these positions because they don't want to be, because they're not trying, because um, they just want to be where they are. Not realizing the damage that was done by the events of 1898 and how that damage has perpetuated itself. Um, And so ignorance of the past can be very destructive. Only when you understand why things are as they appear to be, can you then either appreciate or question and want to change things? The patriarch
0: of the Howe family was brought to Wilmington as a slave. And the Howe family, as I understand it, is a model of resilience. Because even though this man was kidnapped from Africa, brought here against his will, and enslaved, it was only. It didn't take long, for this incredible wealth of talented builders and architects, and and thrivers to emerge. Who who was the man who came
1: here first? The first person that we know of on my father's uh, side of the family, to be brought here enslaved from Africa, was a man given uh, the name Anthony Walker, uh, through family folklore, handed down through the generations. He referred to himself as, it's either Mbuntu or Mboto, but uh, phonetically, I'm not sure. I have some friends who are uh, West African who've been researching it for me. In any event, he was brought to initially the Walker Plantation in Brunswick County, and upon the death of the plantation owner, he was sold as an asset to the Howe Plantation. Um, when you mentioned resilience, I thought, yes, he was resilient, and he passed that on to his children. Because during the hurricane season, it's, uh, the story goes that the slave quarters, uh, many of them were destroyed. They were blown down by the heavy winds or whatever. But he, having building knowledge and building skills taught to him by his father as a boy, rallied together other slaves who had different uh, languages. And and people often, it's just unbelievable, people often forget the fact that slaves came to America. They were brought here from different cultures, different tribes, different religions even, with different languages. But Anthony Walker rallied them together on the Howell Plantation and he helped them to work together and build a synergy as a team to rebuild the slave quarters. And that uh, helped him to gain favor with uh, the Howe family. Uh, he ultimately was married to a ward of the family, and they had children, and each of his sons were taught the building trades. Um, his younger son, Alfred, was the son of who flourished most in Wilmington and became most prominent. But he had other sons, Pompey and others, who also were builders, and their fingerprints are all over the architecture of Wilmington. Can you just name some of the buildings that <laughs> that
0: are because of, of them,
1: the I house? Can, I could give you the locations off the top of my head. I can't tell you the actual building names, but on uh, north, between North 5th and fourth on market uh, on the south side of the street is uh, a home i don't know the historic name of that building but the trademark signature on the How alfred house structures is the french style mansard roof line that slopes down and curves out the same with alfred's uh, home at third and queen street Uh, Which still stands today, and it has the same architectural lines. Um, So there are many others, and I understand from a cousin uh, who's a professor out in the Midwest, Jeff Ward, that Preservation North Carolina is looking at the homes that the Howes built, and uh, hopefully, sometime this year or next, they will be recognizing the various Howe architectural sites in Wilmington. So they are expected to become official historic sites? Yes. they Many of them have uh, historic Wilmington foundation plaques on the front of the homes, um, but I think more is being done to explore the work of the Howes. And on North Carolina State's website for builders and architects in North Carolina, you will find a complete write-up on the Howe uh I call them the Howe Fellas, the Howe brothers, the sons of Anthony and Tina, and their uh, work in Wilmington. Yes. So Alfred Howe is is buried at Pine Forest Cemetery? Yes, he is. He was initially buried uh, at the old homestead. However, his body was reinterred, as well as his wife's, and the original stones are there. Uh, There is a plot that has many other house, uh as well as McDonald's, uh, Crummel McDonald uh, and his family buried out there. And Othelia's mother and father are buried, but not right on that plot. They are buried out to the, that would be to the south of the plot with other hows nearby, so. Yes. And so, Going back
0: to your upbringing, Cynthia Brown, in Wilmington, you learned that there was a race riot, what your father called it, in 1898. And so now we know that the house became architects, important architects and builders in the construction of the city of Wilmington. And there is a visible legacy of that here. 1898, the coup d'etat happened Black citizens were forced out of office at gunpoint. Many were forced to leave the city of Wilmington. And those who stayed, Athalia Howe, your great-grandmother, the one who grabbed you by the wrist and said, if it ever happens again, run. What happened to her on November tenth, 1898?
1: Athalia hid with her mother and sisters, her two sisters in Pine Forest, On the morning of the massacre, her father had left for work. Uh, Her father was William Howe, William C. Howe, a son of Alfred. He was a stevedore on the docks. He worked with barrels, barrel-making, and uh, he was a carpenter by trade, as many of the Howe men. Athalia, according to my father, and these are stories that he told her directly, She told him, I apologize. She told him directly and his brother, uh, David Anthony. Athalia told my father that she was looking out of the window on the front of their house and saw a man on North 5th Street walking out onto the dirt pathway, apparently to go to work. She said to my father that she watched him as he saw men coming down 5th on horseback. My father never gave me details, um, how many or if they were wearing red shirts or whatever, but she witnessed him being shot right there. And as he turned to go back into the walkway to get into his house, he was shot again. So he was shot multiple times. She ran to her mother. I don't know what the men did. My father only explained that Athalia's mother, Mary, took her, her sisters, her older sister Augusta and Carrie, and they went out the back and they went to other houses to get other women. They were members of St. Stephen AME Church. So they weaved between the shotgun style houses on 5th, trying to get to the church without being seen on the street. And when they got there, they couldn't go into the church. Now my father didn't fully explain why to me. I later learned through church records what happened. But they left the church and they headed east. And at that time, leaving the immediate downtown area, you would go out into what was like the countryside. And so they went through the, quote, countryside to get to what was Pine Forest. And there they stayed with other women, children. Uh, There were infants out there there were, um, well, for instance, the wife of the pastor of Central Baptist Church was out in Pine Forest. And uh, <clears throat> there were many people there for a few days hiding. They That's, hid there in Pine they Forest there. Cemetery for several days. They hid there for, for several, days. several days. And her cousins, Nada Cotton and her brother Crummel, who was just a toddler, they hid in their house on the south side. And their neighbors protected them the night of.
0: You're listening to Coastline talking with Cynthia Brown about her family history in Wilmington, the work she's currently undertaking on racial justice and reconciliation. We continue our exploration when we come back. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Cynthia Brown graduated from one of New Hanover High School's first desegregated classes, turned her tassel, and left town to start college that summer. She couldn't wait to leave Wilmington. Born and raised in the port city, she knew she couldn't thrive here, even though her forebears were some of the city's important architects and builders and doctors. Today, we're exploring the legacy of her family, the Howe family, and the impact of the 1898 coup d'etat on that legacy. So on, the, on November 10th, 1898, your great-grandmother, Athalia Howe, and some other women saw what was happening, started gathering women of color to run to a place where they could hide until the violence stopped. Yes. And they had some help along the way.
1: Yes. Um, When they left their homes, they initially went to St. Stephen Church but found the church under siege. And I didn't know that from my father at the time. I learned later what happened at the church. But they left the church hiding on the sides of buildings and made it to Pine Forest Cemetery where they literally hid. Um, Pine Forest is a very lush, um, beautiful uh, cemetery with a lot of vegetation, uh, trees and shrubbery. And although the hurricanes in recent years have damaged the uh, vegetation, I'm certain they had no problem finding hiding places out there. Um, What was frightening though is that the creek runs along the northern boundary of the cemetery. And so as I learned more about what happened, I really was bothered, that's the best word I could say or use, by the fact that there were animals out there probably, could have been alligators, definitely snakes being so close to the water, but the women and children hid there uh, out of fear of being killed. Yeah, and they had some white neighbors that helped them. Yes. Uh, so Athalia had a cousin, uh, Nada Cotton, who lived on the south side of town. And Nada and her family lived in the old uh, Howe homestead, Third and Queen. Nada wrote in her memoirs that had it not been for their white neighbors protecting them that night, they might have perished. She wrote that um, the men and the boys uh, had weapons, they had guns, and the women baked. Bread and made coffee, and everyone stayed up all night long. But they could hear gunshots, and they could hear terror in the night. Um, and her her writings are on file, actually, out at Randall Library at U N C W. You have said about 1898 that
0: it left a broken community. You said the insurrectionists felt they were making Wilmington better, stronger. <laughs> But their failure to recognize the strength in the diversity of Wilmington caused a traumatic breakdown in
1: society here. What do, you, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that, in my opinion, the element of greed, disrespect for one another, for culture or ethnicity that was different, the disrespect for people who were formerly uh, enslaved or their descendants led to a desire to take something that had not been earned by the insurrectionist as a result people were killed people were terrorized people were run out of town people lost their property uh, people lost their livelihoods People probably lost their sanity, their mental health. Families were broken. When people fled, they did just that. They fled with what they had on their backs. In some cases, maybe a few were able to pack up some items and goods, but it wasn't like calling up the U-Haul van and having your items, your belongings moved. And families who were left behind didn't necessarily know where their other families, had family members, had fled too. So the family lines were broken. We, The people did not live in an era of cell phones and Google and laptops and so forth. So you couldn't just call someone up and say, where did you land? And once you landed in another community, you had to be sure that you had a possibility of surviving because... I learned later that telegrams were coming into Wilmington from as far north as Washington and Baltimore and as far south as Atlanta, west into Charlotte, saying, we'll send more Winchesters, we'll send more men, we'll help you finish the job. And, and those telegrams were published. So people fled, but even when they arrived in a new location, they either had to find a safe house or find other friends or other relatives. and develop some sense of safety before trying to start over. I don't think they even considered sending letters or telegrams back to Wilmington to relatives. Um, It just wasn't safe. No, it wasn't safe. And safety was first in mind, to be safe. Um, And so so Wilmington
0: lost this wealth, uh, I mean, literal wealth, and wealth of talent. Yes. And a brain trust.
1: Absolutely.
0: And and so Ms. Bertha Todd, a, a civil rights icon in yes. Wilmington, who's, yes. who's been instrumental in so many of these conversations in service of the racial reconciliation process. She has talked about what she calls this 1898 mentality that is still here. And you've said that part of the strategy was for the white power structure to suppress those black citizens who stayed behind, ensure that there's enough fear in them so they wouldn't try to reverse what had happened. Do you still see evidence of what Ms. Todd calls the 1898 mentality here, that, that kind of public deference, keeping one's head down so that it doesn't get cut off?
1: Is that still a thing? To an extent, I think so. Um, I think in some circles, it's not fashionable to talk about it. It's, it's um, more palatable to recognize it, but to keep your head down, secure what you think is yours that you've achieved, not stir the pot, and let's all have a big kumbaya, and let's all be happy. But my father, if he were still alive, would say uh, that's symptomatic behavior of a fatal wound. My father was a physician, and although I'm the one that chose not to pursue science, uh, my my sister is a a medical doctor, my brother is an engineer, a chemical engineer. Um, My father always would say, well, you didn't want to go into medicine. I'm going to teach you Thing or two so you can take care of yourself. And he would speak to me with various analogies. And I think of the analogy of a wound. What happened here inflicted a near fatal wound on the black community. Very quickly, it was important to bring about a sense of normalcy, because as was published in the Messenger newspaper, if the goal was to attract more white families to Wilmington so that they could have the jobs, they could have the opportunities. That was in the tenets of the 1898 White Declaration of Independence. Then the only way you'd attract someone uh, here would be to bring about some sense of normalcy as quickly as possible. For those who didn't flee, then there needed to be some way, I would imagine, to make them feel comfortable enough to come back out, to resume work in lesser positions, perhaps domestic, laborers, etc., and to just sort of pretend everything's okay. Almost like a Stepford Wives movie or something. Everything's fine. We're just going to... Completely gaslighting. That's right. And so in the case of my great-grandmother, she was a person who was not able to leave for college and study away. And she sought uh, work as a domestic. And St. Stephen was a wonderful, wonderful church in that it provided services, including educational, dental, medical services in the post-1898 community. And there she learned various skills that landed her work with the Parsley family, (laughs) Walter Parsley, one of the Secret Nine. But she worked there and worked her way up as a head cook at Live Oaks down on Masonboro. I can only imagine the things she heard and learned, but she kept her head down with hope and vision for the future and for the generation that would come after her. And as we think about the racial
0: reconciliation process— I, and i just from experience here i know that people of color are careful understandably talking about the truth on the air it's a very risky thing to do it's if if you get too offensive perhaps you'll lose a seat at the table and so there's there's always this Walking the line of, you know, how can I tell the truth but not not offend the white power structure? And an off-air conversation is so often very different from an on-air conversation. Is that changing at all? Or is it still
1: risky to really tell the truth? I think it's changing some. But it has not made a complete about face. I believe that there are those in our community who feel that it is too risky to just put it out on the table for fear of offense. I had an experience once, which I won't go into detail, but um, a person in the community, very well seated in his position, said to my husband, you know, but if we speak up, it's like we're walking down the sidewalk and we look across the street and we see wrong and and we want to step across the street, but if we step up, we might create a fence and they'll come after us too. That's alive and well still in Wilmington. Um, White supremacy. Yes. Um, I am of the opinion that truth must stand, no matter what the cost. Um, Because if the truth does not stand and it's hidden, then you have generations who will come after you, who will be in the dark, black, white, any ethnicity, any race, any color, any creed, any religion. So truth must always stand. It's not to create a fence either way. It's really to disinfect and flush out those things that would harm us as a community. You can't, going back to my father and his analogies, you can't properly treat a life-threatening wound or any wound until you first look at it, take a culture, understand what's in there, what has caused this infection, and then disinfect the wound. And that is not to create any offense or pain or harm to the patient. It might be painful, but when it's all said and done, you've cleared it out. And now the wound can properly heal. You came back to Wilmington in
0: 1993. And we we just have a few minutes left. You're here. You, You were the first human resources director for the city of Wilmington. You worked as a community advocate. You've done other things. Now you are acting as a historian, and you are a key part of this racial reconciliation conversation. Is racial justice different from racial reconciliation? And, and does one have to happen before the other? Or do they happen together? What's the work now? Where are we? I think
1: they have to happen together. I think that ra- racial reconciliation involves telling the truth, bringing everything to the surface and reconciling wrongs that have occurred in whatever way that needs to happen. Racial justice means, in my mind, doing the right thing for those who have been injured. Even if you or I didn't perform those acts, we have a responsibility to bring about justice for the wrongs that have occurred. If that does not occur, if justice does not occur, you can't have true reconciliation because you'll have programs and projects and initiatives for people to rise up and improve and the communities improve, but they won't be rising from the same vantage point.
0: You are now building a friendship with Lucy McCauley, yes. who has appeared on Coastline. She uh, is a descendant of some of the white perpetrators yes. of 1898. Your forebears are connected yes. in a certain way. Yes. What's the connection now between the
1: two of you? That's a good question. Lucy and I have built... A relationship that has turned into a friendship that started really quite on a fluke. I didn't know Lucy. Uh, She stumbled across my name doing some research on, I think it was Pine Forest, and reached out to me. I was guarded when I met her. She would make frequent visits to Wilmington to visit her mother, who was infirmed here in her uh, last few years. And... uh, She and I, over a period of time, through dialogues about the truth, about what happened here, developed more of a friendship, more a deeper relationship. And she is now named a scholarship after your family. Yes, she has. And I'm very excited and grateful to her for that in the sense of the gratitude comes in my gratefulness for her acknowledgement of what her family did and her vision for the future and what that scholarship will do for the future when we're no longer here.
0: And that's this edition of Coastline. Cynthia Brown, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Rachel.
0: Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.